actions. Let me just say, uh, this is the beginning of a new series for me, and uh, normally this is not the approach I would take. Uh, we would back up and do a lot of other background kind of understanding in the book, but because it's Communion Sunday, we're going to take this approach, just sort of focus on <clears throat> sort of our memory verse that we're looking at here today. Look at how it begins. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can only do what we do by your grace and by your help. Lord, we are totally dependent upon you, even for the next breath that we breathe. And so we ask that you might help us today to do what is humanly impossible, to have insight and understanding into your word through the Holy Spirit and his help. And I pray, Lord, that you would, in such a way, that you would help me in explaining these simple truths, that, Lord, you would do what is, again, humanly impossible, and that is to help our hearts become enamored with and to truly treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. Toward that end, we pray and ask for your help. Amen. The New Testament epistles are actually letters written by apostles to either churches or individuals. And the normal pattern for a letter that was written during the time of the first century usually included a brief statement by the author about who it is that's writing them. And then they also compose a brief salutation, a greeting to the recipients, followed by a word usually of thanksgiving. And they celebrate the individual or the groups, group of the believers that are receiving the letter. And so when you come to Paul's epistle of the Galatian, Galatian churches, he does not follow that pattern. He does introduce himself. He does explain who he's writing to. But after a brief comment along those lines, he launches into the theme of the letter and his reaction to news that he's learned about his audience. And in this letter, we find no words to start off with any kind of thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, there's no brief prayer that opens the book as sometimes you might find, I'm praying for you, I give thanks for you, and I'm praying for you all the time. No, we don't find anything like that. But Paul was, verse 7, chapter 1, he was astonished at what was going on. We know later on in chapter 4, verse 20, that he was perplexed with these Galatian believers. And we know from chapter 3, verse 1, that he was upset with those who had, he used the word, bewitched them, who had tricked them, and they were trying to pervert the gospel that he had proclaimed to them, as he writes there in chapter 1, verse 7. Paul was deeply troubled as he wrote this letter. Have you ever written a letter when you're deeply troubled? 
Usually it's an indication that you care deeply about something. And that's why you're investing your careful thought and your attention to writing a very heavy letter. As we begin this series now on Galatians, I want us to look and think about asking the question as the title of the sermon. What's all the big fuss about? Why can't there be a little bit of a a lighter tone to this letter? What is Paul, the great missionary and church planter, what was it that he was so upset about and concerned about that he would be get all this big fuss about not even being able to say, I'm thankful for you? Well, clearly a priceless treasure that Paul had and he had extended and shared with these other people, this priceless treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was being corrupted. When I think about a priceless treasure, I think about an incident when I was traveling in Europe in the, in, when I was in college, and we came to St. Peter's Basilica as we traveled through Rome, and we saw this amazing sculpture by Michelangelo uh, called the Pieta, which is uh, Mary uh, been sculptured in this large piece of marble, and she's holding the dead body of Jesus. And a couple of years prior to the time we saw it, a deranged man in 1972 came into that church and with a masonry hammer walked over and just pounded on this sculpture. I mean, he just did all sorts of damage, including big chunks of it that were falling off, and people grabbed those chunks and took them home, some of which they've never found. But anybody who appreciates and values sculpture reacted, of course, with shock and horror that someone would do such a thing to an irreplaceable and one-of-a-kind masterpiece. Now, I can say to you that that particular statue, by the time I saw it, had been repaired, and they keep you at a distance now, and there's alarms, and there's glass probably between you and there, and so that it's much different than it used to be. But it's, it's not exactly as it was, but you couldn't tell it from where I stood. But what happens if you take a treasure like the gospel and it is corrupted and perverted and undermined? The result is not just a couple of pieces that need to be sort of pasted back on. The result is eternal disaster. To distort the gospel is to lead people on a human level to relational fragmentation. There is nothing that will draw people together with the same powerful effect as the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is distorted, it will also lead to spiritual bondage. Bondage to self, bondage to sin, bondage to this world, the things of this world. It will also and ultimately relate to, it will also result in eternal damnation if the gospel is distorted and destroyed. And so Paul's answer to the question, hey Paul, what's the big fuss all about? that motivated you to write the epistle of the, to the Galatians? His answer would be something like this. He said, if I did nothing, when the gospel was being compromised, I would be dishonoring God. I would be denigrating the power and the purpose of the cross of Christ. I would be a person who would leave others enslaved, those for whom Christ had died. I would be disrupting the plan of God 
a plan that was called, designed by God to liberate his people, to love God and to love each other from hearts that were cleansed and made new. So this morning I want us just to very briefly consider what I would call five reasons why the gospel is to be treasured. Five reasons that the gospel is to be highly prized, that the gospel is to be highly cherished. And by the way, if you look in your bulletin on the lower left-hand side under the order of service, you'll notice that our mission statement as a church ties in with this because we believe it's one of our purposes as a church. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who do what? Who treasure the gospel, who live out the gospel, who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is something that hopefully will apply to all of us and we'll see this even as we go through the entire book of uh, Galatians in the weeks and we, uh, weeks and months ahead. All right, let's look at our first point here, beginning there. The gospel is, I would suggest you, to be prized and treasured because it is constructed on the foundation of God's selfless love. Paul summarized the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in this way. He said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It is what God is doing and what God has done in Christ that is the gospel. It is not about us and what we do. And in the letter to the Galatians, Paul then mentioned this reason, the first reason that we're going to cite here, to treasure the gospel is this. Jesus, verse 4, gave himself for our sins. Jesus willingly and voluntarily offered himself and died for sinners like you and me in the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. His death was not forced on him. And that's very important to understand. When you read the gospel accounts, never does it indicate Jesus was somehow a victim of all those things that happened to him. He yielded himself up for those who were enslaved in sin, people like you and me who lived a life we were condemned in our sins. And Paul mentioned this numerous times in his epistles. He couldn't get over the fact that Jesus gave himself so lovingly and selflessly. Ephesians 5. Jesus loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. Titus chapter 2. Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus gave himself for us. And then in John 10, we read Jesus as he speaks of himself and refers to himself as the, the good shepherd, a shepherd who really cares about those sheep that belong to him. The good shepherd is motivated by selfless love. He says in John 10, verse 11, 17 and 18, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I wonder how many of us, if we truly treasure the gospel, have really begun to plumb the depths of what it means to see demonstrated the love of God in the selfless laying down of his life of Jesus Christ. What does that do to your life 
as you think of that kind of love that's been shown to you, how does that motivate you to be a person who selflessly lays down your life for those around you? Paul's heart was gripped by the truth that God demonstrated selfless love for self-righteous people like himself, Paul the former Pharisee, and people who are self-righteous like ourselves, who rejected him and rebelled against him. He nonetheless laid down his life. You see, self-giving, self-giving love is costly. Lieutenant Murphy, local gentleman raised in this area from Patchogue, I believe, was killed in June of 2005 in Afghanistan after exposing himself to enemy fire. He did so knowing that he was going to leave that position of safety because he's trying to get a clear signal to ask for help for the reconnaissance team that he was on. They've been discovered by a couple of uh, shepherds who are just out there minding their own business. They come across a bunch of soldiers. They clearly are out of place. They know they're now going to be either uh, discovered or they're going to kill those shepherds. They just talked among themselves. They decided not to kill the shepherds. They just were doing their thing. They weren't enemy combatants. And now their cover has been blown. And so he's leaving the safety, goes to try to make radio contact to get help and backup. And in so doing, he gives the location of where they are, explains what their needs are, the emergency that's happening. And as he returns to position, he is fired upon and eventually dies of his injuries. Now, if you were one of those guys in his group that survived, how would you view the act of that Lieutenant Murphy? He gave himself for you and the other men in that platoon, that little group of Navy SEALs, so that they might what? They, they might be rescued. And that, again, is the image of what Paul is just pondering here, is why the gospel is such a treasure to him. It shows again and again the selfless love of God for sinners like you and me. Jesus' self-sacrificing love led Paul to view the gospel as a priceless treasure, because what does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? Paul says, Christ loved me and he gave himself for me. Not just for people out there, not just for those people who need help. He gave himself for me. It's no wonder Paul treasured the gospel. No wonder he's highly upset by those who would distort it and modify it. A second reason that we are to treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ is found again in verse 4 as we continue on in that phrase, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. The gospel is to be highly treasured because Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross provided the only adequate and sufficient remedy for our greatest problem our sin. We are the ones who deserve to die. We are the ones who owe God an infinite debt for our sin. And Jesus took our place on the cross. Jesus offered himself as our sin offering. Not his own sin offering. Our sin offering as our substitute. And so Jesus' death on the cross is not merely a commendable example of selfless love, although it was, 
but it was a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice offered to God to deal with the fact that we are facing the wrath of God as sinners. And so Jesus did not come merely to teach and provide moral instruction. Yes, he did that. But he did not merely come to buy us a second chance so that we can get our lives right. We need to understand. Notice what Paul says. He gave himself for our sins. He did all that we, he did all we needed to do, but we cannot do. That's what Christ did. Now here's something very important. You realize that when you begin adding something that you need to be doing in order to be forgiven by God, there's something that you need to make sure you accomplish or check off your list or something you need to stop doing that somehow is going to make you somehow better standing before God, somehow going to pay your debt for sin, then, my friend, you have just now begun to step into that territory in which you're denying the fact that Jesus' offering for you in your place was sufficient in and of itself. We are saved through faith alone. We are saved by Christ alone and what he did for us. And we are saved on the basis of grace alone, not on the basis of our performance. And that's such a powerful truth that will liberate you and set your heart free when you truly understand it and apply it and trust it and place all your weight upon it. I'm thick, recently I came across some missionaries that we support. I'm not going to use their names because I don't want this to get on the web and I don't want to cause a problem for them. So I have to be careful when I quote their their uh, prayer letters and things, but they said to me, they said in this prayer letter, they're concerned for a gentleman that they've been getting to know fairly well. He lives in a country where the majority of people there are Islamic, followers of Islam. And this man was frustrated about Islam. He was being honest. And he admitted that if he misses one of the five times of prescribed prayer every day for him as a faithful Muslim, if he misses just one prayer of the five, that he is bound to somehow have to make up for that in hell for at least 80 years. Now, can you imagine carrying this heavy load of responsibility and burden that you must do this and do this and do this and the five prayers and this and that and, what, and all the long list of things? And they said in talking to him, the guy admitted that kind of pressure he just gets so weary of trying to keep all of that. And he says there are many, many, many other laws that he needs to also keep that are just insurmountable, overwhelming. Man, man finally gave up. He says, I figure I'm just going to be in hell for a while until somehow I make it to heaven. And our dear missionary friends were able to point him to what? Jesus, the prophet sent from God. He did everything that we need to be doing so that we can be forgiven through him. He died for our sins. That is, my friend, the priceless gospel truth. Galatians 2.16. Turn over one page there and look at that. Galatians 2.16. A person is not justified. That is, to be declared right with God. A person is not declared right with God by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ 
Jesus. Period. End of sermon. All God's people said, Amen. That's the reason we treasure the gospel. It's because Jesus did what we cannot do, and that as he did it sufficiently, we can find all the benefit from it. I wonder if you know that, my friend. Or are you a person who, as Paul's afraid, slip into this idea of thinking, well, you know, i got to do this, and I know that I'm not going to be right before God unless I do this, unless I do this, and i got to be doing this. I feel like God, you know, I don't even want to talk to God today because I'm so embarrassed because I haven't done this and this and this. You've lost sight of the gospel, my friend. The gospel is what Jesus has done for you, not how well you're doing whatever it is you think you ought to be doing. Point number three. Third reason why the gospel is such a treasure and ought to be a treasure is the gospel demonstrates that Jesus' payment was sufficient for sinners and that sinners are justified by faith alone because Jesus was raised from the dead. Did you notice that in verse 1 of, of, of chapter 1, Paul sneaks in there the second element of the gospel? First element is that Jesus died for our sins, gave himself for our sins. Second element is Jesus was raised from the dead for us and for our justification. So he mentions there that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Paul was passionate about that. Paul was just blown away when he was confronted on the way to Damascus by the living Christ who spoke to him and confronted him on his way. And again, Paul would tell you that Jesus is not an ordinary man. He is God in human flesh. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And he is the only person who has had victory over the forces of sin and death and hell when he was raised from the dead. And Paul knew that if Jesus remained in that grave and is still dead today, that Paul's preaching is a waste of time, it's a bunch of hot air, it's useless, and that anybody who has faith in Jesus and somehow thinks they're going to trust in Jesus to help them any bit at all is just worthless. It's not worth any kind of confidence in Jesus because we still remain in our sins if Jesus is still in the grave. And so if Jesus is still dead, we deserve to be pitied, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, because what? We're relying on somebody who is incapable of helping us after we die, because he's still dead, and we would be dead. And so he says, you're an idiot and a complete fool if you're trying to worship or trust somebody who is still in the grave. And that's why it's important to understand the gospel declares that Jesus died for our sins, yes, but he was raised again on the third day. And every sinner desperately needs power over the curse of sin. And the only one who has that power is Jesus Christ. Why do you think Paul was so passionate in his letter? Why do you think he couldn't take some time to write what he was thankful for? Is because Paul experienced the power of the resurrection when he was confronted by the risen Christ on his way to do what? To put other Christians to death and to persecute them and imprison them on his way to Damascus and Syria. And the power of Jesus changed and transformed Paul's heart. At one time, Saul the Pharisee was highly motivated to do what? To destroy the church. That was his passion. 
And now what happens? After his encounter with the living Christ, he became the one who proclaimed the faith that he one time tried to destroy. Chapter 1, verses 23-24. The one who once persecuted is now preaching the faith. That's the power of the resurrection. That's the power of the gospel. And for the longest time, Paul was zealously attempting to gain his own righteousness by being a fanatical rule keeper. That's what he gave himself to, keeping rules, keeping rules. I'm going to keep more rules. I'm going to create more rules so I won't break the other rules. And I'll do a better job than you do. You watch me. And so he prided himself on all the rules that he kept keeping. Until what? Until he confronted with Jesus Christ, who stopped him in his tracks and helped him realize that all of his zeal was showing a heart full of hatred for other people and a sense of pride in himself. And Paul then finally understood that he was trying to gain the righteousness the wrong way. And now, instead of keeping the law, Paul's heart has been changed by the gospel. He considers that everything that he achieved, all of his rule-keeping, all of the checkoff on his list that was mighty long, he was a very religious person, All that long list became worth nothing to him. It became worth manure to him, he says literally in Philippians. Why? Because he gained something of surpassing value to that. A value that cannot be measured. The value of saying, I now know Jesus as my Savior. And he says, I know the power of his resurrection that's given me a changed heart, a changed desire, changed motivation for everything. Before the gospel was Paul's operative mode of living, his heart was inflexible. Paul's heart was unloving. Paul's heart was impatient with people. Because what did he do to somebody he thought wasn't keeping the right rules? He'd grab them by the collar, haul them off, and make sure they got the worst kind of treatment possible. He had no tolerance, no love, no patience. He was lacking in meekness because he was a man who was out of control with his zeal and anger. He had no joy in his heart. And Paul never sought, during this time in which he was a rule keeper, he never sought to what? Restore somebody who fell into sin, which is what he talked about at the end of Galatians 6. He says the gospel gives you a heart to what? Restore people. Bring them back up to where they need to be rather than tear them down and knock them down. So Paul, his self-focused zeal motivated him to destroy people who broke the standards. And now what does the gospel do? The gospel changes him to where what? Now that Christ has borne his offenses and changed his heart and given him a new heart, now he what? Now he's the gospel, he preaches the gospel of freedom. Freedom in Christ, free from that heavy burden of trying to do all those things, and now free to what? Serve other people, love other people, and point them to the same changing life-changing Savior as Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25, Paul writes there, Jesus was delivered up, he was crucified because of our offenses. He was raised because of our justification, that we might be declared right with God. Don't ever lose sight of that, my friends. That is the gospel. It is to be treasured. 
Number four. I've got to hurry up here. Okay, the gospel provides the only antidote, the only antidote to successfully resisting the seduction of the fallen world. Verse 4, chapter 1. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sin that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. Say what? Deliver us from this present evil age? That's part of the gospel? Yes. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, those of us who are joined to Christ by faith are put under new authority. And the gospel doesn't just merely resolve our obligations. It does that in paying for our sin. But it changes our identity. It changes our status. And in the gospel, Jesus delivers us from the domain of darkness and he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians chapter 1. And no longer are we slaves to darkness due to the law. Now the spirit of God operates within us and he's sent into our hearts and now we're able to relate to God differently and we now enjoy companionship and closeness with God as his own children adopted by faith. See, Paul's concerned that when the gospel is compromised, people lose sight of the amazing liberation that Jesus provided to them who believe in him. He argues in this epistle that we've been liberated not to serve the interest of ourself and our flesh, to live as if what? As if we're just a part of the world that lives for me and lives to, to, uh, to follow the, the evil one. But he says, no, we've been now given the Holy Spirit, that we live by the Spirit, enjoy the freedom to now serve other people out of a heart of love. Galatians 5, verse 13, speaks of this very clearly. When he says, chapter 5, 13 of Galatians, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what the gospel does. It changes us in what we seek to do with life. Why? Because of our new identity. We're no longer the kingdom of darkness. The gospel of Jesus' cross and resurrection calls us to no longer be conformed to the world. Romans 12.2 And I've given you a couple of quotations in your notes about what worldliness is characterized by and what's it like. Let me just come up and just sort of summarize to you. Worldliness is loving the values and pursuits of the fallen world that stand opposed to God. If we truly understand and embrace the gospel and we treasure the gospel, notice that how it's going to affect the way in which we sort of see what's valuable, what's really important, and where we're pursuing things. The goal, as uh, Joel Beek says, the goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. They burst with selfish desires rather than heartfelt supplication. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget God, or else they use him for their own selfish ends. Worldliness is human nature without God. If I truly understand the gospel, I understand that's not how I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to live my life as if I am not a believer, as if my heart has never been changed, as if I don't have a new identity, as if I don't have a new kingdom that I'm now living under a new master and a new, a new king. 
And so the point here is that the antidote to worldliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no wonder Paul is concerned about that and passionate about that. He doesn't want people to take the liberty that comes in the gospel and then just use it back just to what? To live for, the, for the Satan, to do the, the biddings of the evil one. Mahaney writes, C.J. Mahaney, only through the power of the cross are we able to resist the seduction of the fallen world. We must fight worldliness because it dulls our affections for Christ and distracts our attention from Christ. Worldliness is so serious because Christ is so glorious. My friend, if we treasure the gospel, we're going to make our boast the cross of Christ. And we're going to realize that what? Through the cross, the world has been crucified to us. I don't buy into the way the world thinks, the world system that exists apart from the kingdom of God. I don't buy into all that. I see through that, and I begin to say what? My heart has a passion to live for Christ and to follow the leading of the Spirit who is leading me against the big the tide, the, 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 the stream that's pushing me down. I'm going to swim against it. Why? Because my identity is I'm a child of God who is a, now in the kingdom of light because of what? The grace of Jesus Christ shown to us in the gospel. I wish I could unpack that further, but I want to make one more point here before we celebrate these things in time around the Lord's Supper. Point number five, the gospel, since it originated from God, brings God glory and magnifies his sovereign grace. Look at verse 4. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our, God, of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Salvation is all of God. God's plan for salvation was in his mind from all eternity. Acts 2.32 says that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so the cross is God's idea. As crazy as that sounds, the resurrection was God's doing. And the saving of sinners is God's doing from start to finish. And God has never saved anybody on the basis of something that that person achieved or something that person avoided or something that person earned or something that person merited. God saved sinners through Jesus' atoning death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead on the basis of grace alone. Grace means unmerited favor. Here's some helpful comments by Tim Keller. I think it's also in your notes. He says, there is... No indication of any other motivation or cause for Christ's mission except his will, the will of God. There is nothing in us which merits it. Salvation is sheer grace. That's why the one who gets glory forever is not us, it's God alone. And if we contributed to our rescue, if we had rescued ourselves or if God had seen something deserving of rescue or useful for his plan in us, or even if we had simply called out for rescue based on our own reasoning or understanding, then we could pat ourselves on the back for the part that we've saved in saving ourselves. 
Salvation is God's doing. It is His calling, His plan, His action, His work. And so it is He who deserves all the glory for all time. In the gospel, we are both brought lower. That is, it makes us realize how we're not all that. We are people who are helpless sinners, desperately in need of help outside of ourselves. It'll bring us lower, brought lower, and raised higher than we can imagine. Do I get an amen? 1 Corinthians 1. I urge you to read that sometime. 26 to 31, the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 1. Another passage that Paul reflected on. Let me just say this real quickly. He says, God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those that are strong so that no one may boast before God. And then he says this, verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Salvation is all of God. And if you understand grace, you will understand I have nothing to boast about. There is nothing in me. There's nothing I could point to and say, wow, look how much I've done. Look what I did. Look what I offered. No. It's all about God and His grace. It's all about being blown away by how undeserved the favor I've received from God because He has done it all. Do you wonder why Paul treasured the gospel? It's because he, the gospel got a hold of his heart and turned him upside down, made him into a new creation, gave him a perspective that was entirely different than what he had constantly breathed and eaten and thought about all of his early years of his life up to that point. You see, in the gospel, we're called to reject all attempts to save ourselves or manufacture glory for ourselves. The gospel brings us to our knees. It humbles us. And the gospel brings glory and grace and the love of God to us, helping us focus on it, seeing it, understanding it, and then exposes the shallowness of what it means for us to live for ourselves. If you understand the gospel, you will treasure it, my friend. If you treasure it, you'll believe Christ, you'll trust Christ, you'll celebrate Christ in the gospel because it is the greatest treasure you'll ever have. Let's pray. Let me just ask you before I pray, is your heart wowed by the gospel that we've been describing this morning? Does it stir your soul? Do you find you have affections for God that have are ignited the more you hear about what God has done for us in the gospel? My friend, if your heart does not respond with a sense of wonder and amazement, it's very likely you have never seen that grace of God apply to your own heart and life. So I would call you today to humble yourself, to see yourself as God sees you, a person desperate because of how many times you are sinning and breaking the standards and laws of God, and you will never, ever keep that law. You will never keep it perfectly. You have broken it gazillion times and you will continue to do so. I hope that you will come to the point where you recognize you need a Savior. You stand under the judgment of God facing His holy wrath and what you can do is respond to the love of Christ who gave Himself for you 
for your sins and raised for your justification as you trust in him, inviting him and crying out to him to be your savior, the one that you trust in. For those of us who have come to that wonderful truth of understanding and knowing the gospel applied to our hearts and souls, has the gospel of God's grace in Christ, has it transformed the way you live? Are you living for yourself in your marriage? Are you living for yourself in your job, trying to find significance, a bigger pay package, somehow find yourself to find importance, accomplishment? Are you achieving and trying to compare yourself to other people, how well you stack up against other people? Are you finding more faults in other people rather than acknowledging your own struggles, your own sin, humbly realizing how much grace you need? Father, I pray that the treasure of the gospel would truly be applied to our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would crush all forms of pride that exist in our hearts by comparing ourselves with other people somehow thinking that we are going to improve ourselves and therefore make ourselves more worthy of you. Lord, I pray that you would crush all forms of boasting in ourselves and feeling like we have made various accomplishments that can make us feel better about ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to make our boast in the cross of Christ. Help us to find our joy in Christ, our sense of identity in Christ. Help us to find our greatest delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come now around the Lord's table, I pray it might be a sweet time of fellowship. May our hearts be renewed and encouraged as we focus on you and what you've done. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We invite you to stand now as we sing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. Think about that. Think about these words.